we are not individuals cut off from one another. We are a body. And so if we are a body, then we do have a responsibility to other parts of the body. So that if one of the other part of the body is sick because of moral failure, you know, that then we do have a responsibility to speak difficult things to that individual. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Today, we're continuing our deep conversation with Tay Lee Lau, New Testament professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. Tay Lee was born in Singapore and came to the Chicago suburbs by way of the Silicon Valley. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the first part of our conversation, I would really recommend going back to give it a listen first because it lays the groundwork for what we're going to be talking about today. And once again, we are picking up the subject of shame. Shame has become an all-encompassing term, and most of the stuff out there points out to how bad it is. But is all shame bad? It's Tay Lee's contention that proper, or we could say healthy shame, can be a good thing. And yes, there is such a thing as healthy shame. I know it might sound a little bit ridiculous to many of us, but Tay Lee offers a very compelling case, both from his Chinese heritage and from the scripture. As you heard in the opening clip, as members of the church, we have a responsibility to one another to seek the good of the other. And one of the ways that we do this is actually through a proper understanding of shame. Today, we will be discussing how shame can contribute to healthier, not toxic, churches. How we can only earn the right to speak into others' lives when we are connected to them. Otherwise, shame doesn't really work. What's the difference between shame and guilt? How do typical psychological views of shame fall short? And we're also going to talk about how lessons from Chinese families might help Westerners to develop a moral compass in their children. All that and more as we continue to defend shame with Tay Lee Lau. Today's episode is brought to you in part by FCC Cabinets of Jacksonville, Florida. And now... On to the second part of my conversation with Tay Lee Lau. Happy listening. So we're, we're talking about shame and honor, and you mentioned that we're not to shame the world. The God, God does that. It's not our job to, we're, we're just to proclaim it, let God do that. We're to love and tell the truth, which is its own form of shaming and that you laid right. out the objective standard and you let God do it, but you try not to socially do that mm -hmm. in that regard, but you do do it within the church. And you focused on first Corinthians chapter five, which is something that I find so many Christians that I talk to just have the tendency to leap over. They don't mm -hmm. want to talk about it. Yeah. And they misunderstand Jesus's words when he says, judge not lest you be judged. And I've had that quoted to me. I'm sure other Christians have where you say what something is sinful. 
Uh, I remember being at a family get together and I'd mentioned to um, a, a woman in the family and I, I mentioned that's a sinful behavior. I was a brand new believer and she goes, judge not lest you be judged. And this was a person that didn't go to church. She didn't believe in God, but yet she's throwing the verse at me. And I, I remember thinking to myself, okay, wait a minute. That's judge not lest you be judged doesn't mean we don't give any judgments whatsoever because the scripture gives judgments all over the place. It tells mm-hmm. us to make judgments. And then the, of course, the idea is, is um, we're not to judge those in the world. God's already done that. They're the outsiders. That's mm-hmm. under his judgment, but we're to look within the church. And this is where I think we, we, we fail to have a good ecclesiology and understanding in, in our modern world today, because we've done so much to get people in the doors in the name of evangelism that we have failed to understand how a proper ecclesiology functions, especially with sin in the church. Mm-hmm. We know that if we confront sin, the person's going to go down the street, and we don't right. want to be that. But yet, that is exactly what Paul is calling us to. So let's talk about shame in the church here for a moment, mm-hmm. because there's, again, um, a, a a good shame, a healthy shame. I know that category has been often used, and a toxic shame, even uh-huh. within... Uh, and I know we're throwing out these adjectives. It can be quite confusing because we've already talked about objective and subjective shame. I also know that you mentioned retrospective shame and prospective shame. Shame from the past, shame in the future as motivators. But what I want to talk about now is this, this shame aspect within the, the church, between a healthy shame and a toxic shame. How does, what, or how about this? What does healthy shame look like in the church? In Paul's, especially in Paul's understanding, we know that Paul practiced it, but for what purpose and why? How can we follow Paul's example in a healthy way? I think that if you talk about healthy shame, one of it it's uh, developing a proper sense of shame. Mm. Developing a proper sense of shame is important, and I sometimes consider this like uh, it's a dispositional sense of shame. You know, I have a disposition to be ashamed because of things that I've done, all right? And so this sense of shame then inhibits me, or I think uh, inhibits me from doing things that would be dishonorable to God, that would bring dishonor to myself, that would bring dishonor to my uh, brothers and sisters within the church, or would bring dishonor to the church. So healthy shame would encompass developing a proper sense of shame a proper sense of modesty and that I do not want to infringe on the honor of God. I do not want to infringe on the honor of my brothers and sisters or on the church itself. All right. So I think that it's important for churches to develop this uh, sense of shame. I sometimes call it prospective shame or this sense of modesty. Now, given after doing this, uh, and if we do this well, you know, then, then people I think would, you are hesitant to do anything that would be dishonorable to God. But we know that people inevitably do that. People inevitably do things that are dishonoring to God, do things that are dishonoring to the church. Mm. All right. And so when that happens, then what do we do? The, the, we talk about how you should, you know, uh, speak gently to them and correct them. And then uh, if that doesn't work, then you kind of escalate it further, all right? But one part of it in terms of how do we 
gain a right to speak difficult things to a brother or sister? How do we gain a right to do so? And that is part, I think, of trying to develop healthy shame itself, in that the person who is ultimately shaming them or rebuking them, it must then, the person must know the, the offender, must have an intimate relationship with them, must have known them for a long time, must have known the full complexity of that individual, the circumstances of that individual. So length of time, you know, that knowing the intimacy of the person, having the good of the person at mind, the good of the person at mind, you know, wanting the best for that person, recognizing that we have a responsibility to other members of the body of Christ. We are not individuals hmm. cut off from one another. We are a body. And so if we are a body, then we do have a responsibility to other parts of the body. So that if one of the other part of the body is sick because of moral, of moral failure, you know, that then we do have a responsibility to speak difficult things to that individual. Mm. And, the, and the way that we speak it, again, is to speak the truth in love. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't work, you know that, and then to escalate it further out. And so the in 1 Corinthians 5 is that to hand this person over to Satan, that means to hand this person over to kick this person out, excommunication, so that fundamentally the person will recognize that he is outside of the protective orb of God itself, and that under the attack of Satan itself, and that recognize the errors, hopefully recognize the error of his or her ways, and then be able to come back into the community. Mm. And so part of it is that how can we then, to how do we earn this right to speak into the lives of the individual? Is that if our own lives reflect a life of, of purity, of sinlessness, of our moral rectitude, if we do care for them, we know them, we love them, then we do have a right. If we don't know them well, if we have never seen them at all, if we only know them just as a name without knowing the full background of that, then I think that with the the harsh words that they receive from us, they will not consider that as a rebuke Mm -hmm. with the right intention, but they will consider, you are just trying to humiliate me. Mm. So they will not recognize their fault itself. And so they will not receive the shaming rebuke. And so they would then just say, head it with you all. I'm going to leave. I'm going to yeah. go down to another church down the road and, uh, and begin the whole process again. So that I think they're trying to speak uh, harsh things, you know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Mm. You know that, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so that we need to be a friend. We need to love them and we need to know them well. And when we do that, you know, then I think that they'll be more receptive to the words mm. that we say, even those words that are hard to to listen. These are, I mean, this is not easy stuff. No, it's not. <laughs> because it involves real deep relational mm-hmm. connections. And mm-hmm. in our culture today does not lend itself to That's right. mm-hmm. deep friendships. However, 
COVID has accelerated some ideas of or the weaknesses involved in the contemporary modern Western evangelical church. Uh-huh. It's, yeah. it's accentuated the fault lines, if you will, of differentiation where the models now are being played out that have been there and based more on business and marketing practices necessarily rather than on biblical discipleship. Uh, mm-hmm. I interviewed uh, Jim Wilder, uh, who had, who's a neurotheologian, as well as Michael Hendricks, and both of them had written a book together called The Other Half of Church. Uh-huh. And in it, it talks about this, this missing of a relational, what I call a relational reformation, actually what they uh-huh. call that, because we have missed that. It's hard to do this, what That's you're right. talking about, unless we have a, a relationship based uh-huh. upon love action. So let's say that we do have that relationship and we go about it. Or let's say that we're in the process of that. Um, this is where it gets tricky. Because in order to do that, you have to know who is a part of you and who is not. Mm-hmm. The hard part is that transition between unbeliever to believer. Uh, some people, and you and I both know this, when someone comes to faith in Christ, they were in darkness and they're in light. The light switch was on, I mean, was off and now it's on. Mm-hmm. But what I see is it's more of a dimmer switch in their relationship. They needed to understand they belong, they were loved. And they had to have time to process that as they come to the realization of who Jesus is. Uh The hard part that I find in the churches in which I've served, there comes a point in time where they know that there's a cross, there's a line where they cross it, where they cross between I'm part of the community and now, or or I'm part of the the, the community and now I become part of the the core family. Um, But there's times where I see them walk right up to that line. And they're not willing to cross it because it know, they know that their sin, like they can't go on in their sin. Let, that's let, right. Let, let me give you an example. Um, you have a couple that's coming to the church that are living together. They're not married. And so they start coming. They're, they're great. They want to serve. And they have no interest in getting married. And they say they were, they were raised in church. But, mm-hmm. of course, their lifestyle is showing that they're really not – either they don't really know who Jesus is or they're living in complete disobedience. I mean, either way, they're not pursuing what God desires for them in wholeness. And you want to make room for them in that period of time. But as they come along, they realize that in order to be quote unquote, a member of the church, if they have membership, because a lot of churches now have gotten rid of that. um, And I think you do, but that's a whole nother subject entirely. Um, but they don't want to be because they know then they could be disciplined according That's to right. the shame aspect. Uh-huh. So they're fine staying in the, peri- the the perimeter because they know that other people are around and the shame comes after the line is crossed. So they don't want to cross it yet. What do you do in those instances for those people? you have any insight or wisdom for us there? I think that God calls us to be all disciples of Christ Jesus. Yes. There's no such thing as being a believer and not being a disciple of Christ. Mm. Being a believer is being a disciple of Christ. It is someone who makes Jesus Lord of their lives. So it is not the church imposing some kind of arbitrary standard on them, but this is God imposing his standard on all of us. And all of us are at different stages of this growth. Mm -hmm. But yet all of us are, as being disciples of Christ, are striving to live the lives that Christ has called us to be. 
And so that if someone is not willing to place himself under the commands of God, all right, is not willing to place himself under the commands of God, you really have to question, you know, are they, are they committed to being a follower of Jesus? Mm. Or are they just wanting to be on the periphery, enjoying the, the supposed the fruits of the church itself, but not yet being a follower of Jesus, not yet being a member of Jesus. And so I think that uh, that's a decision that they have to make. Are they willing to put God in in the center of their lives? God is calling them to live, uh, I think, to live a certain way that honors him, that really considers him as being uh, the Lord of their lives, and that they, they need to do that. That they are wanting to be a son of God. Mm. So it's really a question of do they do they really know who Jesus is? And if they if they do, then you have to challenge them by bringing that truth, whether they're a member or not, because right. they're they're identifying as a believer. If you're a believer, whether you have formal church membership or not, you're still a member of the body of Christ by mm-hmm. definition. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they are in the uh, deserving, if, uh, quote unquote, of that shame that the scripture calls us to use as a tool of spiritual formation when done in love. That's right. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, it's that we need to bring them into a confrontation with the word of God, that yes. God is speaking to them directly, not so much the church, but this is what God says. This is the commands of God. And we have to follow through with those. Yeah. Um, okay. That's that's very good. But I, I want to then take this in a slightly different angle because we, we talked about shame a lot, but you go uh-huh. to great lengths in the book to differentiate and talk about the overlap as well as the differences between guilt and shame. And that's yeah. a very important distinction. Please explain to us what the difference is between guilt and shame, how they're separate, as well as how they overlap because there is an overlap. <laughs> Well, Travis, how much time do we have? You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let me try to see what I can do that uh, in a short amount of time. Usually, if you talk to psychologists, uh, well, guilt as it's it's uh, if you look up the dictionary, all right, guilt is then seen to be the objective state of having done something wrong. Mm. That is guilt. Uh, but the way that psychologists understand guilt as an emotion, all right, as an emotion, not as an objective state, mm-hmm. uh, there are three axes by which they consider how uh, guilt and shame are differentiated. One of it would be that uh, it's the identity versus the act factor, all right? Identity versus act or the slash act. behavior. So the action, you mean? Like identity versus the action done? Yeah, identity okay. versus action. Okay. So that shame is then more focused in terms of one's identity. Who and are? that guilt focuses on the act, so, the behavior, action. So, so shame is about who I am. Guilt is about what I've done. That's right. And okay. so that the way that Brene Brown would then explain it is that uh, guilt would be to say that I made a mistake. All right. Okay. I, I did. I made a mistake. And shame would be to say that I am a mistake. So it's one's okay. identity. All right. Or, you know, to do this, to have the statement that I did something wrong, 
shame will focus on the I. So can though you be shamed? Like you might have guilt. I've I've done something wrong, but that causes shame. I am wrong. Like let's say that mm-hmm. someone has some secret sin that they do. That's right. Right. And and they're doing it. It's not been imposed upon society, but it's imposed upon imposed upon oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, having worked with a lot of young men, we're going to get really personal here for a second. Having worked with a lot of young men, you get into the sub, and not even just young men, but young women. I mean, I've not worked in this regard, but I've heard reports from other people. But the subject of let's say masturbation. Okay, we're going to get into the sexual realm here for a moment. Um, they would say in that instance, okay, there is this. Ab- objective shame let's say upon society which society doesn't even care about anymore they say it's good and it's natural and all these different things but yet some have struggled for so long it becomes a sense of subjective shame Mm -hmm. for themselves so we're saying that guilt might be i've done this thing that is wrong but the you can still have a sense of shame because of an internal that's right that you feel about yourself so shame can can overlap so guilt and shame are intimately connected it's not an either or it can be Mm -hmm. a both and right that's right and uh, but that's how typically psychologists differentiate it that guilt focuses Ah, on the behavior shame different it focuses on the identity but it's very hard to separate identity with behavior it's very difficult to separate identity with behavior. I mean, even Jesus says that you will know a good tree by its good fruit. You will know a bad tree by its bad fruit. Right. And so it's very difficult to differentiate between uh, uh, identity and behavior. They are so collapsed together. That's why I think they're trying to differentiate between shame and guilt as emotions. It's, uh, it's very problematic. But that is how psychologists would typically differentiate it. So that's one axis. All right, Travis. The second axis would be in terms of a public or private. So that if it is a public, then dimension, then it is considered to be shame. Or it, if it is a private, then it would be in terms of guilt. Or another way of understanding this is to be whether it's heteronomous or autonomous. So that one sense of right and wrong comes from one's internal uh, compass, moral compass, or right and wrong that would be considered guilt. But if our sense of right and wrong comes from other people, heteronormous, other people from oh, okay. the world outside. I was going to ask you to define that. I'm like, heteronormous, that's not a normal word I use. Yeah, I'm that feeling very, very heteronormous today. Just... <laughs> <laughs> that's the concept of the law, normous, all right? The concept of law comes from others. Ah, yeah, that's right, nomos, okay. That's comes from yeah, others rather than comes from auto- autonomy, autonomous, so, comes from myself, then that would be considered shame. Where so, my sense of right and wrong is determined from outside people, that would be shame. If my sense of right and wrong is comes from my own internal moral compass, that it's guilt. So, okay. So that sounds like what you said earlier. You talked about the objective sense comes from outside and then the subjective sense is from the inside but it sounds to me like you're describing the same thing um no 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 this is so uh when we talk about objective and subjective shame you know we're talking about how shame can be understood in multiple valences okay but when uh for example your the sanctions that encompass you to do certain things you know that is it determined by outside people 
or is it determined by your own moral compass? So shame is determined mm. primarily by outside people. All right. You don't want to do this thing because you know that others are looking and seeing what you're like, doing, Travis. Like my grandparents, my parents, my family, right. my community, or my mm -hmm. area code. You, you mentioned that in the book, and I say area code, that's my way of just describing it. Because shame doesn't always occur from a societal perspective, but it comes from the people that you know that are in your social sphere of influence. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. And where guilt would be your own uh, moral compass. Okay. What you have, what you have been brought up to. So there's this distinction is that shame is public, guilt is private. But how, how can then shame be, can shame be private too? That's that subjective shame? Yes, shame can be private too. Okay. And so that is why, you know, psychologists differentiate shame and guilt on the private, uh, public versus the private axis. But I say that that distinction, it's also not very tight because mm. I can tell you, I can feel ashamed even when there's no one else around me. Yes. How right. many times I have felt okay. ashamed just by thinking in yep. my mind and internalizing the opinions of others in my mind. And so that those, in, so, so that the opinions of others are now my own. So that shame now, you know, the public shame now becomes a private shame. Got so it. that's why the public-private uh, dichotomy doesn't really work that well. It kind all of right. breaks down. Oh, I'm yeah, giving you all that. the reasons why I think that it's how psychologists differentiate between shame and guilt. They do not uh, ultimately, uh, they do not work. work. They're not, not very airtight. That shame and guilt are usually bound together. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Water, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. So we're looking at it from a biblical worldview. Uh -huh. And seeing how the scripture, that differentiates between how modern psychology sees this difference. Mm -hmm. So how then does the, the biblical part removes that then? And here's another complexity that I may have to introduce, Travis. I'm, I'm not adding too many. Do it, Taylor. Let's do it. Come on. You can do it on this show. That's how we roll. Okay. Now, uh, emotional like scenes in one language and one culture do not translate directly to emotional lexemes in another culture or another language. Okay, hold on here. 
define lexeme because I kept finding that in the book, and I'm like, I got to look this up, and I just kept <laughs> Okay, words. Emotional words. words all right, okay, words, words that words. describe emotions in one language or one culture do not map directly to words that describe emotion in other language or ah, culture. So give me an example. Give me an example. So like the word for shame, for example, in the Chinese culture and the Chinese language has overtones of guilt in that we typically uh, understand. Okay, okay. And it's the context. same thing also in terms of the, the Greek, the Greco-Roman okay. world. So that when Paul talks about shame, in Greek and in the Greco-Roman world, he is also talking about guilt in our modern world. Okay. Does so, that Paul, also, does that also play with honor? Uh, not with honor, because honor is not an emotional like scene. Oh, it's not an okay, emotion. Okay. It's not emotion word. Okay. 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 But love is. So love. love is. Love has many different, I mean, we all know, well, I don't say we all know, but mm -hmm. if you've been around Christianity for any period of time, you know, there's different Greek words for love because right. those represent different things. So you're saying then that the, the shame words that are used have different ideas and meanings and they don't always translate correctly. Yeah, there are clearly overlaps. There are clearly okay. overlaps, all right. But I think that the shame word in the Greek New Testament itself and in the Greek literature, it also encompasses our guilt, understandings of guilt too. Okay. So, so there's it's not a, a hard and fast line between them. Yeah. Okay. And so, so I think that uh, when we have a better understanding, you know, of the Greek culture itself and how their words function, then we began to see again how it has implications for our world and our language. So that when Paul talks about shame itself, you know, that. Uh, when Paul talks about shame, the shame context also encompasses our understanding of guilt too. Okay, T taking that into consideration, I, I, I want to slightly uh, take a fork in the road here, if you don't mind, because I, 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 when you're talking about languages, you actually contrast in the book the difference between Chinese parents and American parents. Yeah. And how they raise their children. And one, really, the, the American parent really doesn't use any form or very not not as much not even proportionally uh -huh. i think you gave a number of like was it over half 56 percent, something like that and whereas the chinese parent had like 90 percent uh, right. and put that put that idea of shame even as young as two years of age that's which right I, which i found to be eye-opening and i thought uh -huh. well how do you create that a sense of shame because modern parental books do not want any shame whatsoever it's it's uh -huh. the, this i hate to say scarlet letter it's anathema we, uh -huh. we don't we don't do that because we're so afraid of hurting our children that's right the problem is that is actually hurting them in the long run because really what we're failing to give them is a moral compass that's based on mm -hmm. a biblical worldview and yeah. we're leaving them to be imprinted with a moral compass from the world right that's right uh -huh. And it's, it's one of the funny thing, you know, Travis, is that within the Chinese culture itself, you know, and within the Asian culture itself, uh, and especially I'm going to bring up a Confucian, 
scholar by the name of okay. Mencius, who was the second most important sage, Confucian sage okay. in the Chinese world. Mencius, Mencius. Mencius, all right. Okay. He would say that shame is necessary, the emotion of shame is necessary for cultivating moral children, moral people hmm. itself. Well, that's true. We, we all have that. Yeah, and, and so that so and I think that Chinese parents pick up on that, and that that's why you know even in from the get go from the early years of childhood, they instill in their babies, their toddlers, this sense of shame, because shame is something that is innate. Uh, shame is something that it's it's an emotion that we are all born with, you know that. And so they use that to try to inculcate in uh, Chinese children that sense of right and what is right and what is wrong. That if you've done something wrong, then you are shamed for it. But it's all done within a playful context. It's all done within a context of deep love. All right, that is a critical thing. It's not mm -hmm. done, I think, within the context of vindictiveness, but it's all done within a context of play and context of love. And so that even from the early get-go itself, you know, the Chinese children are then kind of brought up to be sensitive. They're brought up to be sensitive to what is considered honorable, what is considered shameful. And, and that's why I, I read a book years ago, Mangoes or Bananas. Mm -hmm. Do you know that book by no. Kwa Yun? Um, mm -hmm. It was in Singapore, actually. Mm -hmm. And in it, he talks about a contextual Asian, Asian theology. Mm -hmm. um, which I read the book and I went, I don't find this Asian or contextual. I find it biblical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but he talks about the need for an understanding of theology of ancestors. Mm -hmm. um, and to those modern Western um, individualist Americans, right. that, that idea is so foreign. However, biblically, it's not. You, uh -huh. You've got this idea of the great cloud of witnesses that are there, the people That's that right. are uh -huh. from the generations that I think biblically we need to be aware of, but it is the idea of living your life before and, and, and aware of the people in your social network and what is pleasing to them and what is not pleasing to them. Uh -huh. That's what we're talking about ultimately here. That's Shame right. is the emotion that is evoked when you are not doing something that is displeasing to the social network, which you are a part of, which flies in the face of modern individuality to a point. Right, right. Yes. In that modern individuality is still has that same network. It's just rather than focusing it on the family, it becomes a social media family, mm -hmm. uh -huh. an online persona. And that's where we still have the remnants or this idea of honor and shame. It's just been redefined according right, to right. The standards of what those within the, the media influencer power uh -huh. Have mm -hmm. determined, correct? Correct. And so I think that, you know, one of the things you try that uh, missiologists talk about would be the distinction between individualistic cultures yes. and collectivistic cultures itself. And that uh, America tends to be much more individualistic mm -hmm. than whereas Asian cultures tend to be much more collectivistic. And collectivistic cultures tend to be more sensitive to our actions, how our actions impact others how our actions impact our larger family, mm -hmm. our larger cl our clan itself. And so I think that those are important, you know, that. And the thing too is that when we try to develop, uh, as you say, you know, in terms of networks on social media itself, there's so much anonymity within social media. You only let people know how much you want them to know. And even then, you know, the 
the degree of interpenetration of how much you know uh, somebody else is highly curated. It is almost sometimes it borders on it being fake itself mm -hmm. so that there's no real sense of uh, the whole person responsibility of yes. the whole individual itself. And so I think that that, it's, uh, that is one of the drawbacks I think that we find in terms of American culture here. And I think that even in the, in the Greco-Roman world, the size of the church is typically, of a house church is right. 30 Small. to 80. Now we have churches that are thousands. How, how can that be meaningful relationships, you know, that, uh, within a church of that size. And so that for mega churches, you know, that they need to develop to break it down into smaller subunits so that there can be meaningful relationships uh, built up among those uh, smaller submodules there. Which is a whole nother discussion on how do we create yeah. those social networks and frameworks with a proper accountability and understanding uh -huh. by giving the the freedom of expression and individuality within the context of still this idea of, of community and collective spiritual formation. I mean, these are, That's right. we're throwing a lot at this. There's a lot to this. Um, I know we're running out of time today and I've, I've, I feel like I've, we haven't even really delved into the subject as well. I mean, we've talked a great deal about it, but reading your book, there's, there's a lot to it. And I found myself writing and, and, um, talking through as you go through the background and greco-roman and jewish uh -huh. background and then how paul uses retrospective and prospective just, just for a moment can you highlight the differences between those two between retrospective shame and prospective shame sure now shame is caused by some kind of bad thing some kind of evil that is going to happen to you all right now the bad thing that can happen either in the present or in the past it can happen either in the present or the past. If it happens in the present or the past and you feel this sense of inadequacy or this sh sense of shame because of something bad that happened in the present or the past, it is then understood as retrospective, somewhat looking back. Okay. Prospective is where the bad thing that happens, all right, is typically in the future. It's okay. a possibility. It's a possibility. And because it's a possibility, it's prospective. And because there's a possibility, this prospective shame then tends to be understood as a sense of shame. Mm. Because I know that if I do X, Y, Z, people are going to laugh at me. Mm. People are going to ridicule me. So I don't do that. Okay. If I do X, Y, Z, I know that I will be shamed by God. Mm. So I don't do that. So that's it's prospective. And so that leads me to, you could say, to be a hedge around my behavior. Mm. And it curbs, uh, curbs my behavior. The one of the things that's, uh, to, to know is that we cannot attain true honor without a proper sense of shame. Yes. Why? We cannot attain honor without a proper sense of shame. Because you can't know what good is unless you know what the bad is. Yes. Or vice versa. You can't attain honor without not without not knowing what is bad, what is dishonorable, and not doing that. So that honor and shame are just two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. And that in order to have true honor, 
you must have a proper sense of shame. Mm. So that so that many, you know, that Greco-Roman authors will consider shame to be equivalent to honor in that regard. Okay, so the shame in the past, what's what's what we've done or mm-hmm. or happened to us, shame is is an action that's been completed. The shame as a deterrent, that's the idea of what could happen, the idea of what could happen if I were to do this behavior and I don't want to bring it, so that, that acts as a deterrent. That's right. So my, I have a question here then. Uh, I remember reading Jason George's book. I can't remember if it was 3D Gospel or Ministering in Honor, Shame Cultures. And he mentions a situation, and I can't remember what country it was in. I want to say it was India. I could be wrong. Where there's a girl that's on the back of a kind of one of those uh, bike taxis. I can't think of the name of it, but it's where you can have people get on and off on it. It's uh-huh. almost like a like a like a uh, a cart of some sort. And one man uh, tries to make advances toward her. And so she she is trying to rebuff his advances because he's being socially inappropriate. And she decides to get off because it's very uncomfortable to get off this little taxi. And she she does. She sees her uncle uh, down the street. And rather than run to him for protection, she hides because she feels shame. Now, she didn't do anything mm-hmm. to merit that behavior, <clears throat> but that's how shame works is she feels like she's the problem. Mm-hmm. What kind of shame is that? That's something that I don't think many of us are very familiar with in the West. It's something very foreign. Why would I mm-hmm. feel shameful for something I didn't do? And why am I retreating when that's where I should be going to that person for protection? And I think that that is a distorted sense of shame, you know, that, uh, and so that for, for me, I would say that she shouldn't feel any shame at all. In mm-hmm. fact, she, the other person should feel shame. shame, but it is within the society itself. It is within the, it, within the subculture itself is that the women are then considered to be the problem. Mm. And so that the women are considered to be a problem and that they are considered to be the ones that brought this incident about. And so therefore, they, the society itself then, you could say that teaches them to feel that they are the cause of the problem and so therefore they should feel ashamed. So I think that that is a false sense of shame that uh, she has. Well, this is why you mentioned in the book that all forms of understanding shame are highly contextualized depending upon the context in which one finds mm-hmm. oneself. That's right. Um, and I I remember reading that, and I, I would definitely agree. I think it is a distorted view of shame. But I remember the gang rape that occurred in 2012 in India, and a young woman was out late. She had her escort with her and on a bus, and their group of men assaulted him and beat him up. And then they, they gang raped her and then they threw her off and she actually died later as a result of her injuries. Mm-hmm. When they were interviewing some of them, they basically said she deserved it because she went out late at night and he couldn't protect her. And he felt that it was her that was the problem, not him. And of course, society responded and said, no, 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 especially the women. They said, this is terrible. This is where we've been. And there needs to be a shame element that is objective, but the distortion that he had of that uh-huh. shame caused him to respond in the way that he did. And, and yeah. again, this is so foreign to so many of us in the West, but with the resurgence of shame 
in the form of social media cancel culture, you're you're seeing the same elements. It looks mm -hmm. different. But as we also have become even more of a nation of immigrants, and they're bringing their ideas of shame along with it, it becomes very important then to have a proper biblical definition of shame so that we know how to share and live out the gospel in the middle of this society, because it is a formative element. It's something uh -huh. that's always kind of been there. We've uh -huh. just not necessarily been able to articulate it or use it in a proper manner, correct? Right. We can't get rid of shame. It right. will always be there, you know that. And I think that what we can do is try to rehabilitate it. Hmm. We have a very distorted understanding of shame, and that we are that our task, you know, as biblical teachers, pastors, uh, is to rehabilitate our understanding of shame so that it is more in line with Scripture, and that that I think is the task for us. Which is what I think you've done and what you've contributed. I mean, this piece of literature that you have created really is a thorough look. I, I was impressed with your your um, ability to bring it out, and you brought out different dimensions that I didn't even think of, how you brought uh -huh. in the Greco-Roman understanding, the Jewish understanding, which I highly appreciated. And then even you you capped it off in a way that I didn't think you were going to do. Actually, I was totally unexpected when you talk about it from a... Um, a criminal justice standpoint, and the, the idea of even shaming and using shame as a powerful tool is to deter prisoners um, mm -hmm. in the, the the criminal justice system, which which I thought was a very interesting take on the entire thing. Uh, but you you one of the things that you said was is there's a there's a become a dearth uh, or a plethora of literature uh, about the subject and trying to wade through. You've tried to do that by bringing us back to the New Testament, because the New Testament is 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 a corrective to much of the mm -hmm. modern ideas of shame. So we stay within a biblical framework, which is so important for living a, a, a successful, holistic Christian life. So I wanted to thank you for for the book. I want to thank you for writing it. It is a challenging book. You've got to really be able to, to think yes. through the issues. I mean, it mm -hmm. is jam-packed. <laughs> with every sentence means something. <laughs> yes, people have uh, commented that I was in no way redundant and that uh, <laughs> the ideas do not appear again later on. So I apologize for that, that I didn't repeat the same ideas later in the end of the book. Uh, but nevertheless, I still think it's an important book for us to digest because I, very, I find very few people that are actually defending uh -huh. the idea of shame. And I think that's the, the corrective that we need to stay balanced as people get on the bus to eradicate shame. Really, they're <laughs> practicing a form of shame and they're doing so by those who don't eradicate with the way they do, they want to shame them. Um, what do you hope God does with this book? Well, I hope that it really serves as a corrective in terms of how we uh, are how we understand it, you know, that I hope that actually it just doesn't remain only uh, among academics. I hope that it's really read by pastors. I understand that some of the material is a little bit academic itself, but I, the principles there, I think it's highly pertinent uh, to the church. Mm -hmm. It's highly pertinent to the church. And I hope that uh, pastors would read it and would be able to, uh, to instruct their, their flock accordingly. Well, I hope that we can aid in that because I agree with you. I think that pastors do need to hear this. They do uh -huh. need to research it because we're never going to be able to navigate the, the myriad of issues 
that we find that we're confronted with on a mm -hmm. daily basis without an understanding of these subjects in order for the gospel to go forth and the kingdom of God to continue to expand. Um, what's the next project you're working on? Well, I'm currently working on another one, which is instead of just looking only on shame, but to look at emotions as an entirety. And in terms of what is the relationship between our emotions and spiritual formation, and that how does God want our emotions to be structured? And what's the relationship between emotions and morality? So Wow. That's going to be a very interesting read. I'm sure some people are even raising their eyebrows as they're listening to this. <laughs> very interesting. Or I don't know what I'm going to do with that. <laughs> How can people follow you and learn what you're doing? Well, I'm not very good on social media itself, you know that, but uh, if you just see in terms of some, if you just, I think, keep an eye on what I'm writing, I think that would be good. But I don't really have a kind of blog or a website that really highlights or trumpets my writings. So no, sorry about okay. that. No, there's nothing to be apologetic about because honestly, it makes your life a whole lot more complex. Yeah. <laughs> when you have to, then you have to deal with the possibility of being shamed <laughs> when you're on social media and saying something. I know. Like that. <laughs> but again, Taylee, I want to thank you for coming on Apollos Watered. The pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me, Travis. I bet that you haven't looked at shame like that before. I know I hadn't thought about many of the things that were brought up, but I have learned a ton and I have found this discussion extremely helpful because shame is everywhere today where it seems that it's everywhere I turn. People are afraid of saying something or doing something because they don't want to be shamed or as has been said, canceled. We know we are to love people, and shame feels like the opposite of that. But really, when you probe down a bit deeper, we see that it's not. When done properly within the church, it's actually an aspect of love. But maybe you disagree. If so, we want to hear from you. Or if you have any questions, I mean, what rang true? What do you disagree with? Do you think that shame doesn't have any place in the church today? We want to hear from you about it. Drop us a note on Instagram or Facebook, and we will do our best to read your question or thoughts on the air. We also know that we've barely scratched the surface of this very important book. I know you may be wondering if it is for you. Let me just say it this way. It is an academic book, so it's not for everyone, but it is an important one and one that I think that you can read. It might be a bit of a stretch if you're unfamiliar with the topic, but it is actually worth it because there you can find the biblical support and reason for why shame has a place in the church today. I really can't recommend the book enough. This episode is here because of listeners like you. If you want to have more episodes like this, then consider becoming one of our watering partners. We would love to be able to have you partner with us to help renew the church around the world. Go to apolloswater.org, click the support us icon, and simply select the amount that works for you. Whether it's a one-time gift or becoming a monthly supporter, we need you to help renew the church around the world. Much thanks to our Apollos Watered team of Kevin, Melissa, Eliana, and Rebecca. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. 
Stay watered, everybody.